1: Hello, and welcome to the new series of the FT Business Books podcast. I'm Isabel Barrick, Executive Editor at FT Work and Careers, and joining me today are my colleagues Andrew Hill, Management Editor, and Emma Jacobs, Work and Careers Feature Writer. Hello. Hello. We're recording this series of the podcast around the theme of how to live and work better in a tech driven age, and we'll be talking about new books that offer advice and practical steps towards that dream ahead of the launch of the 2018 F.T. and McKinsey Business Book of the Year Prize later this spring. Our first book is Great at Work by Morton Hansen. It has the subtitle, How Great Performers Work Less and Achieve More. That's got to be everyone's dream. And this book is not just the author's opinion. It's based on a five-year study of more than 5,000 managers and employees. One of its seven key insights is that the most successful workers do less than obsess – So without further preamble or dithering, let's talk to Morton Hansen, who is management professor at Berkeley in California. He joins us on the line from the US. Welcome, Morton.
0: Thanks, Isabel. It's a pleasure to be here. What I
1: liked especially about this book was the fact it was based on a survey of 5,000 people. That's a huge sample. How did you find these people? And how did you make sure they weren't just rating themselves awesome at their own jobs?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's always an issue when you're an academic looking for a good sample we uh, did it in several stages. I mean, first, we did a pilot of 300 people, and we also asked bosses to rate subordinates, so it's not only self-report. And on, on that pilot, we discovered some real surprises They weren't the expected hypotheses. For example, that you should focus, that people who focus are, are better. There is more to the story than that. So we did that, and then we did uh, interviews with 120 people to understand it more in depth, what people were actually doing. And then we did the final survey study of 5,000 people, and again, we had bosses rate subordinates and people rate themselves and subordinates rating their bosses, so to avoid this overly self-reporting. And on that basis, we were able to look at statistical correlations between work practices and performance. And I should say that this data is drawn from corporate America across industries, across roles and professions, and junior and senior people, men and women, 45% of the sample is women. So it's a very representative sample in the corporate America landscape.
1: I think what stood out for me was that you debunk this now very widespread idea that workers or anyone has to do 10,000 hours of practice to get really good at something. This seems to be great news. How did you debunk it, and, and what were you we going to do instead?
0: Yeah, I mean, I should say there that there is a, a large body of academic research done on sports athletes and musicians and chess players, and spelling bees, uh, competitors, those kinds of things, and by Anders Ericsson, who is in a professor of psychology here in the United States, and they came up with this finding that had lots of practice, the hours, and they had this thing they called deliberate practice. And If you look at that research, it is really the deliberate practice, more than the hours that really count. Unfortunately, Malcolm Gladwell and some others took that idea of hours and turned it into the 10,000-hour rule. And that became a myth, a convention that you need to put in those 10,000 hours to master a skill. But it's really the quality of that practice that matters the deliberate practice, or I call it the learning loop in the working environment. So it's the quality of your, of your looping in terms of doing something, getting feedback, measuring the outcome, and modifying your approach. If you do that with quality, that is what counts and not the hours. And we found that in our data as well.
2: So if you were going Morton for this do less than obsess uh, mantra, that you're one of the things that you strongly emphasize in the book, is there a way that workers can get themselves out of the the trend towards presenteeism, just turning up, not really paying attention. In other words, how do you get this commitment to the quality of what you're doing rather than just quantity?
0: Yeah, I mean, right now I think there is a perverse trend in the modern workplace, and it's around business that volumes of activity is seen as accomplishment. The number of meetings, the number of business travels, the number of flown air miles, the number of text messages, uh, on and on and on. But business is not an accomplishment. We live in that kind of of world. So it takes a bit of discipline and courage and education to be a contrarian, to stand out in a different way. And one way you can do that tactically is to kind of educate or manage your boss. If you have a boss that keeps uh, piling on work, it is to push back and to do that in an appropriate manner. I think one of the great skills that are needed in today's workplace is the skill to say no appropriately. And so that you communicate that you are focusing and therefore you have to say no in order to do excellent work. And it's not an easy thing to do, but I think it's a critical skill.
3: Actually, Morton, on that topic, I was accused the other day of doing a British no, which (laughs) resulted in me doing the work anyway. And I just wondered what the right way of saying no is.
0: Yeah, it's put the emphasis, the uh, burden back on the boss that... The, the job of a manager fundamentally is to prioritize. It is to allocate work and prioritize. And if a manager gives too much work or, or make people being spread too thin, then you have a problem of prioritization. So it's totally fear to go back and say to the boss, you know, look, you asked me to do these three things and now you're giving me a fourth thing to do. Uh, what should I do first? What is the most important here? And and so you're pushing it back. Now of course the boss might come back and say, Well, hey, wait a minute, can't you do all four? <laughs> and you have to sort of say yes But if I do, the quality of the work is going to be less because I'm now spreading my resources across the four thing. And so it's a kind of a dialogue where you're constantly pushing back on the boss. And what we found in the data, there were instances, there were people who were able to do this, and they just didn't take uh, this as a given, the work that was given to them, but they, in fact, did push back. So it's a it's a difficult thing, but it's a critical thing to do.
3: I mean, I know that your study was looking at employees, but I was thinking about freelancers when I was reading it. And, and I think they have a particular problem in saying no because they worry worried that they're going to run out of work one day. So the ability to say no is thinking what the right work to do for you is, as well as just for your manager.
0: Yeah, and goes to another principle in the book, is that you have to figure out where do you create the most value, what is your value-creating activity, and being able to sort of segment your work. And there's a story in the book of a person, uh, Susan Bishop, who started her own little boutique firm uh, in executive search, and that is a little similar to being a freelancer. In other words, you have to pay a monthly bill. If you say no to a client, you may not have a client next month. Mm. You're living in a constant fear. But she fell into this trap of saying yes to everybody who came to her firm. This is a little firm. And soon enough, she was spread to thin. She was working in areas where she didn't really have the expertise. So her cost and her resources were drained. And as a result, the work wasn't as good. Her profit margins were half of what they should have been. And now later on, she turned that business around. But she fell into exactly that trap because she believed she could not say no to a client.
2: Coming back into the office, one of the most striking case studies in the book is about Reckitt Benkizer, the uh, consumer products company, which under Bart Becht, the uh, last CEO but one, encouraged fighting in meetings. I mean, not actual fisticuffs, but certainly encouraged a combative attitude to meetings. Tell us a bit more about that example.
0: Yeah, we did a case study of Reckitt Benckiser published by INSEAD on their practices because it was fascinating to observe them and talking to Bart Beckton and many of his management teams, he calls it constructive conflict. And it, the idea is, I call it fight and unite. The idea is this. When you come to a meeting, the meeting is about having a fight over ideas. It's about having a lively, heated, data-driven discussions to let the best uh, ideas win. That requires that people come 100% prepared, that they are listening to minority views, that they are able to build on his soldiers views and stand up and argue for their case yet being open to alternative views that kind of rigorous discussion is quite rare in the corporate America in particular, and I guess in many other countries as well. And we saw that in our data. Very few are able to do this. But those who are able to run meetings like Rekord Benckiser are performing better. And it makes sense.
2: How do you avoid it devolving into an endless fight? I know that Honda, I think I read once, had has a system whereby yeah. the constant contradiction, but that can run on for months and months. I wonder how they ever built yeah. a car.
0: Uh, absolutely, Andrew. I mean, it can become a debating society. That's all you do. So another norm that they have at Recep and is that after an appropriate length of debate, the senior person in the room calls it if there isn't a natural consensus emerging. In other words, the point of the exercise is not to reach consensus for its own sake. That is okay if you land there after an appropriate amount of debate. But if not, the senior person in the room calls it. And then they have another norm, which is at that point in time, people are supposed to commit to the decision and not sort of keep on the fight afterwards. Because at some point you have to do that uniting. You have to say, all right, we make a decision, the decision is made, and now we're going to go and implement it. And what we found in some other companies is that they don't. They make a decision in a team. Some people leave the, the meeting unhappy, and they go and undermine it in the hallways, or they appeal the decision to the higher-ups because they did not like what was said and decided in the room. Obviously, that's dysfunctional. You're not implementing anything. So that's why I call this principle fight and unite. You've got to have both sides to it. One
1: of the things I really enjoyed in the book was the example of the uh, when people are afraid, really, to speak up, the pre-Bay of Pigs meeting. Why did you use that example? It was a very striking one.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a great example of how a team can have a discussion and fall into these decision traps and having people sitting around the table, being afraid to speak up, censoring themselves, even though they're very against the plan. This is the... President John F. Kennedy's plan to invade Cuba, essentially, and topple the Castro regime in 1961. And the plan, it turns out, was completely flawed. It was based on assumptions that were flawed. But people did not speak up. It's a striking example. As a matter of fact, I have a part-time role teaching at Apple University, and I have developed that case, and I teach it at Apple as well, in a kind of three-hour seminar. And it is a great discussion to have because you want to try to become better and better at running these discussions. And that example is such an extreme one of the opposite. That people are sitting there around the room and they know this plan is not going to work and yet they're not speaking up. It is striking.
3: Morton, I really like the um your bursting of the passion myth. I hear it a lot and and I think that it can be very destructive and has sle- sort of lent itself some terrible expressions like passionpreneurs. I don't know if you'll come across them. But the but I, I think have never heard that. You've term never heard that. it. Well don't <laughs> become one. Don't become one. One of the I mean, I think in the book you talk about the sort of success bias and you never hear about those people toiling in their bedroom. On their passion, kind of thing, who don't go anywhere, but you don't dispense with it entirely, do you? I mean, it has to. You have to combine it with purpose.
0: You know, here in the United States, it's terrible. We have, I think, lots of commencement speakers every May. They got up on the podium <laughs> to speak to the graduate <laughs> class. <laughs> that and is it's the like, worst. Follow your passion. Do what you love. It's the only thing that matters. Because I did it, and look how successful I am. Yeah, that really is the mantra. And as I said, it's a massive selection bias here. Because what about those who follow their passion and they failed terribly? They are not invited by Harvard and Stanford up on the podium. (laughs) So that's the problem we have. Now, if we look to the data, it it shows the following. Passion matters. And that, of course, makes sense. But passion alone doesn't get you to become a top performer. And the reason is that passion is a hedonistic quality to it. It's about what excites you, irrespective of what you contribute Purpose is the opposite. Purpose is do what contributes. In other words, it is what value you can provide to your organization and to your customers and society at large. It's almost the opposite of passion. And what we found is that purpose is a much stronger predictor of performance than is passion. And that the best performers tend to have both. So it's the combination of the two that really matters. But I would like to dispense with this idea that we should tell young people to follow their passion. The question I ask to my students and millennials these days is a different question. It is, what is your purpose state? How are you figure out what you're going to contribute?
3: But do you not think that that, I mean, there's a sort of alternative mythology around purpose, as in, you, you know, your purpose might be, I don't know, creating profit, but often when it's interpreted only as sort of social purpose, And do you think you can reframe anything in terms of purpose?
0: I think that's a great point, and I'm trying to dispense with that problem too in the book which is we have this kind of lofty notion of purpose and is to alleviate poverty or or things like that. But there is a much more mundane interpretation around this concept of do what contributes. I have an, an example in the book of a concierge at a hotel in Quebec in Canada. And this person, Genevieve, she's very passionate about her job. She loves interacting with people. That's the excitement she gets. But she also sees her job as very purposeful, which is to help the clients of the hotel, when they come and visit to Quebec and to make sure they have a good time and see the best of Quebec and help them out in their vacation. She sees that as a very purposeful activity. And we may not. We might think of her being a concierge as kind of mundane. But the point is that she's delivering that value. She's doing it very well. And she finds it meaningful. And she has that combination of value around purpose and passion.
2: What if she really wanted to be a film star? (laughs) Is she not just looking for rather mundane consolation in the role that she has ended up in? I mean, I'm I'm not trying to disparage the concierge. It could be a very worthy, great thing to do. And maybe she is fully engaged in it, as you suggest. But sometimes I wonder whether that's just a way of allowing us to settle with the compromised situation that we're in.
0: Yeah, that's always possible. I mean, I asked her about her background, and she started being a tour guide. There's something she really loved, but it was another profession. She had to travel the world, and she wanted to settle down. So I don't think she had an aspiration to be a film star or something else, and then this is where she ended up. But, of course, that's quite possible in these kinds of formulations, that maybe she settled for that, and others will as well. And, again, it's personal judgment, do you find that for you this combination works? And then we have to kind of accept that and, and not sort of come in and say, well, I don't think a concierge or any other profession can have purpose. They can for the people that are working in those professions.
2: You talk in the book about collaboration, which has been extremely oversold I think uh, as the as the way forward in most areas uh, but you're saying actually you can have too much of a good thing I think one of the examples you cite is an expert group that felt they had to collaborate and it actually diluted their expertise or the results weren't as great as they would have been if they would just continued on their their own path so you, you can have too much collaboration but also too little um, for people out there who are wondering how much is enough how they're going to judge that
0: yeah i've done some academic work on this for several decades now on collaboration and some years ago i did a academic study with professor martin haas at wharton business school and we looked at project teams that were collaborating or not collaborating and the impact of results and we found basically that half of them over collaborated So they collaborated when there was no particular reason to do so, but there was a prevailing norm in the company that they ought to collaborate, so they ended up doing it anyway, and it was detrimental to their performance. And I'm seeing more of that these days, that there is an emphasis on collaborating too much. The problem with collaborating too much is that people launch too many collaboration projects in a company, and then each one of them get under-resourced because there simply aren't enough resources to fully staff them and provide the attention that they need. So you have these kind of half-baked collaboration projects running in companies and it becomes like the night shift to participate in one of those in some areas.
2: I mean, we've been using the FT like other companies, and we've started to use a lot of these tech apps that are supposed to assist collaboration, like Asana and Slack, and the great promise was you wouldn't have to do lots of meetings, you can just enter things into the system, and it will automatically keep your collaborative project underway. I mean, what's your view about these technologies, social media, really, for the workplace?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think they are problematic. They can be very beneficial when you appropriately, but there can also be an overuse. And one of the problems with a number of these software tools is that we basically measure the wrong thing. We measure usage, the number of people using them and the hours that they're on this software tool, like you mentioned Slack, for example. And those volume metrics are not the same as productivity metrics. So we don't know really whether this is valuable or not. And so we need to have IT departments out there measuring the value, the results of using this and not just saying we implemented a tool and tools seem to be very useful because people are using it. But usage is not the same as usefulness. And so we need to kind of curtail it because some of those uh, usage numbers seem extremely high to me that now you have just one more thing to, to pay attention to. The other problem with these tools or with technology in general in the workplace is the amount of distraction. That they generate you get a ping you get a text message uh, you get something happening on one of these software tools and so you don't concentrate on what you need to do and you constantly look elsewhere and we know that from our data in this study people are saying it's very difficult to focus in a modern workplace because of the number of distractions.
3: Actually Morton I had two questions one you might not know the answer to at the beginning of the book you talked about the Natalie conundrum which was when you were a management consultant she seemed to do less work than you but was better and more productive than you I just wondered whether you knew what had happened to her. (laughs) Yes
0: I was trying to find that out myself I know she did very well at BCG and then I know she left to do something else as many people do.
2: She didn't follow so her passion, why, though. Is she uh,
0: yeah, M- maybe. I don't know exactly why. Um, and, maybe but maybe was, she's listening. It was a wake-up call, you know, when, you, when you're working 80 to 90 hours a week, and I, I was doing well, but then you meet someone who's working 50 <laughs> hours a week and doing better... That ought to, you know, be a wake-up call. It just took me a couple of decades to figure out the answer, which is this book. (laughs)
3: And through the book, what would you say the most poisonous myths about how to improve your performance at work that the book showed?
0: I think it's those uh, hours. I think there is a, a, a myth out there that to do better or to do well, you need to work harder or even harder than other people. And it's just not true we have this idea that all these hours are amounting to far better work. And beyond a certain threshold, in my data, it's about 50 hours. Beyond that, it's the additional benefit of of working more hours is just very small. In fact, it might be declining at very high levels of hours. That's what our data shows. So we have that myth out there that longer hours equate better work and better results, and it's just wrong.
1: That's wonderful to hear for all of us here. <laughs> Morton. just to finish up, you did loads of research for this book. Are there any business books or authors you'd recommend to our podcast listeners?
0: Yeah, I have just recently finished reading When by Dan Pink. And I think Dan has done a terrific job with this book. He has looked at the science of timing, when to do certain things during the day or during the month or during the year. And we think of that as an art, Dan is looking at the science of timing. When we do certain activities during the day, week, month, year, life. And his book is looking at that scientific knowledge in greater depth. And I highly recommend it. It's a terrific read.
1: Thank you so much, Morton. It's been really good to speak to you. And your book, Great at Work, is out now in the UK and the US.
0: Thank you, it's been a pleasure.
1: And finally, as an antidote to a rather fraught and tech-obsessed world, we're finishing every podcast in this series with our life-affirming recommendations for what we've read recently. Emma, what have you read recently? <laughs> I
3: didn't say it had to be life-affirming. <laughs> so, Isabel, I've read Layla Slimani's Lullaby about the murder of two children by their nanny, <laughs> which is excellent, actually. That is the hot book of the moment. Yeah, I mean, more fun was I, Tonya, which uh, the film that I saw at the weekend, which also not particularly life-affirming, but a good, (laughs) lively watch. A good distraction. Andrew?
2: Well, I've been immersed in gigantic biographies of John Ruskin, the Victorian sage, because I'm trying to write about him, but I'm not sure that's particularly (laughs) life-affirming, nor is my light relief book, which is Munich by Robert Harris, which I'm about halfway through about the... uh, Uh, the Munich uh, conference ahead of the Second World War trying to avert the Second World War with Chamberlain and, uh, uh, and uh, Hitler but I don't know how it ends yet so it may turn out to be life affirming
1: <laughs> I'm reading a little book called Swimming it's a selection of Roger Deakins writings about outdoor swimming round Britain which is one of my passions
3: how and lovely is it that?
1: it is lovely and it is life affirming that's it for this week my thanks to Morton Hansen in the US to Andrew Hill and Emma Jacobs here in the studio and to our producer Janina Conboy join us next time when we'll be talking about another new book that aims to help us to thrive in a tech-dominated age.